Acts 26, 1 through 12. 1 through 12, yep. There it is. Okay. Well, amen, once again, that God be praised. Amen, I, I just can't help but think, what a great way to start off, right? All glory be to Christ. Amen. And before that, there's power in the blood. Remember, that power also includes, when he talks about victory over sin, some kind of victory over sin in our lives presently now. Amen. Amen. in that. Anyway, we get to hear again of our one true history that the Lord wanted us to know of his working and building his church from the beginning. Let's start reading in Acts chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth was that the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, which all the Jew, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promises, promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, can't help us to read that, Lord, and you answering all your promises in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. Father, we pray now, Lord, and ask that you be glorified in the preaching and teaching of your word. May it build up your people and convict any sheep who are lost. Oh, Lord, once again, help us to settle and set our minds upon you, Lord. And according to the promises in your word, build us up through your word and that you would be more and more glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I just want to take a moment and uh, wish everyone a happy Father's Day. Amen. This is uh, Father's Day today. And uh, again, so grateful, so thankful um, for those offices that God himself created. Amen. The husband, the father, the wife, the mother. 
and the children. And so uh, what, a, what a blessing it is to, to be whatever state God has you in at this time. If you're a father, amen, you're blessed, amen. If you're a mother this morning, you're blessed. If you're single, you're, you're blessed this morning as well. But uh, we, we, we think about the legacy that uh, you know, we just sang about. And uh, I was thinking about a friend of mine who passed away right after we got out of high school. And uh, just how there is no legacy for him. Think of that for a moment. And um, I see my children here and my grandchildren who are here. And uh, Lord willing, the great-grandchildren. And you, you see what a blessing as a father that that really is. To look and to see down through the time and the lineages of time. To see how the Lord blesses, blesses the fathers. And what we need to do, brethren, more than anything now, is to pray for godly fathers. Amen. And godly men, godly fathers who will raise up their children in the admonition of the Lord. And so um, I pray this morning that he will do that to each of us. Amen. That he'll, as, as fathers, as men, as leaders in our homes, that he'll, he'll certainly guide us into those glorious moments of time, for surely with him. And so as my, as my daughter Hannah sent to me a couple weeks ago when we did Mother's Day, and it said, uh, the, ex- the exegetical preacher, amen, and he acknowledges motherhood, and then, as I was saying, and so this morning we do the same thing. We acknowledge fathers, and we're just going to keep right on going with, with the text. It's such a, such a beautiful thing, but it is a glorious office that God has placed you in, for sure. Well, brethren, by the good purposes of God this morning, we have arrived to chapter 26. It's quite amazing, isn't it? We've been on this journey for quite a while in, as Howard has said, his inspired church history. And it's interesting, when one surveys chapter 26, we again see the Holy Ghost, if you will, good order and purposes for having Luke record the longest of Paul's testimony. We remember, this is now the fifth time that in the book of Acts where Paul's testimony is on display. And so we could really break this down, which we're going to do, uh, Lord willing, the first 12 verses here this morning. Paul first testifies, brethren, and again, we see a pattern. This is why, you know, we learn from Scripture, amen? There's sometimes some holy patterns that we see concerning things, and this is certainly one of them, because as you look at Paul's testimony as he goes along, he pretty much follows the same pattern. Some are just more expanded than others. As I said, this is the longest one that Luke records. But he first testifies to his old life. He testifies to the old man. He testifies to... What he used to be, brother, amen, in the first 12 verses. In verses 13 through 23, he testifies to the miraculous again. He testifies to, uh, if you will, the new life. He testifies to what Christ did to him and this glorious converting work that only Christ can do. And so, again, we see this pattern. It's okay, brethren, to use as we see it. I think the Holy Ghost is certainly condoning it. As long as you're not too graphic, depending on your background, amen? It's good to use the way you used to be, to talk to lost sinners, amen, to introduce them to, if you will, the gospel. I was just like you, and here's what Christ did to me. He made me new. He created a new man. He changed my heart. He changed my mind, and so we see that there. And then thirdly, from verse 24 on to the end of the chapter, Paul, with all fidelity, then bears this testimony in the most faithful way as he stands before this audience. And again, brethren, this is such an amazing thing when you consider this. He, he testifies to this converting work of Christ in his life. 
And he tears down, and again, brethren, this is what happens when you live in a pluralistic society. He tears down one's really conceived, preconceived, or ill-conceived idea of neutrality concerning this man, Jesus Christ. This man whom Paul is affirming was dead and now he's alive. And so he's literally ripping that out. He's tearing neutrality away. There is no such thing as neutrality when it comes to Christ. You're either believing on him as a child of God or you are indeed a child of the devil. This is the reality. There's no neutrality there. And this is what Paul does. He stands before this amazing audience. This is, again, brethren, as I said, as we learn here, again, people, many of them say there's no doctrine and there's no this, no theology. There's all kinds of learning that we learn from scriptures here. It is indeed a good order, a Holy Ghost-given order, and he condones it even for us, brethren, as we too bear our own testimonies before the lost. There's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And we're going to see the imbalance here as we go through our text. There's a biblical balance here. And again, brethren, this is something we must consider when we are doing these things. Now, we remember, as we wade into this glorious portion of Scripture, that the Apostle Paul, amen, he providentially appealed unto Caesar. Now, again, that providential appeal to Caesar sets the stage for where we've been, and certainly here in chapter 26, where we are going to go. It's a stunning thing that God uses here if you will. Now look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 26. Let's read them together. And the Bible says, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. And Paul stretched forth his, uh, the, hand, uh, the hand and answered for himself. Verse 2, I think myself happy. I love, that. I love that statement that Paul makes there, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all things whereof I am accused of the Jews. Now again, brother. Because Paul has providentially already appealed to Caesar, there's something that that did. And what that did, brethren, was it took away, brethren, it took away the authority from Festus, it took away the authority of King Agrippa, and it took away the authority of the Jews who were trying to kill him, to condemn him. And so again, we are seeing here, as God's working through this, Paul now stands freely. It's, it, as he stands here on this occasion... He stands before a most interesting assembled audience. And we must consider this, brother. He stands there with the governor. The king is there, along with Bernice, who we were introduced to, in all of her flaming jewels. You remember how she was described with the pomp and circumstance as they were coming into the meeting. He's standing there, along with all of the town's who's who's. All of those who were important in the city, all of the governors, all the leaders, they're, they're gathered there with the king and the governor and everyone else, and it's a stunning thing. <laughs> so really what we're going to see is sometimes not what people think they see. It's an amazing thing. See, they think they're going to inquire of Paul, but actually in the end, Paul inquires of them. It is indeed a spiritual inquiry that Paul makes on them, not a judicious, if you will, uh, inquiry of them. It's a, an amazing thing when you consider that. It really, really is. Agrippa simply says to Paul, <laughs> he says, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself, giving him free reign to commence. And brethren, does he ever commence? It is a stunning thing. He raises his hand in the common gesture of the day and uh, begins to speak. And he says this, I think myself happy. I love that statement. 
It really shows Paul's trust in the Lord. It shows that he understands what God is doing as he's standing there, again, uh, if you will, really going to turn this into a spiritual inquiry on them versus, again, a judicial inquiry of them to him. I think myself happy. Now, brethren, you remember, we looked at this. That's why we're just going to touch the top of the waves on some of this. But that word happy means supremely blessed. The agreeable cessation that springs, listen, from the enjoyment of good. Paul knows that God is working all of this out for his good. And brethren, the Bible is full of this terminology. There are many things that the Bible references that tells the Christian that you and I ought to be happy. We ought to be enjoying the good pleasure of God concerning these things. And one of the most important ones we see in Scripture, and I just want to look at this quickly, is in Romans chapter 4. Turn there, if you would, for just a moment. Look at Romans chapter 4. There really is, brethren, there, there are a lot of things to be happy, to be supremely blessed in the Lord. But there's one in particular that the sinner realizes and is in such joy and is such happy. He is so supremely blessed because of your sins being forgiven. Can you imagine now keeping that in context, keeping that in mind when one speaks to lost people, remembering that this is where I was and this is what God did to me. I couldn't do it of my own. I would have never even thought of doing it on my own. And yet you look at yourself and you remember those days. I remember when I was growing up. I really do. When somebody would talk about the Lord, talk about biblical things, I called them sissies and girly men and all kinds of stuff like that. That was my mindset towards the things of God. Until, of course, we know, and each of us has experienced it, until God takes that mind and changes that mind and that heart and changes, removes that enmity that's there between you. But you see this here. Look at here, Romans chapter 4. Look what Paul writes in verse number 6. Even as David also describeth the blessedness, there it is, of the man who what? unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. And again, brethren, this is so important, isn't it? Because Christianity is not a works-based religion. It is a grace-based religion. It is, in fact, we understand that it is purely by God's grace and His mercy and His long-suffering that one is saved. And so again, we have to keep this in mind when we're preaching to lost people because it's like preaching to the walls, I've said before, if the Spirit of God isn't drawing and working. We must be compassionate to a degree with them. And we're going to see that come on in Paul's preaching. Look at verse number 7, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Brethren, there's nothing greater you can be thankful and be happy and feel most blessed in is that God has forgiven your sins. And this is what Paul is saying. I'm I'm so happy, I'm so supremely blessed that I get to stand here and I get to defend not only myself, but God has opened wide the door for me to preach the gospel unto the kings and the governors and all the important people. It really is quite a stunning thing. Again, we've seen this. This is something that's been kind of repeated, Paul's pattern, as he stands there. Paul considers himself happy. Supremely blessed to be tasked with the Lord's good pleasure. Again, having him witness to the royal worldlings who are present in the audience. This is a glorious thing, brethren. You and I should be happy when God calls you or me. When God calls you or I to stand truthfully for his faith, for the faith of Christ, and to preach Christ, you and I should have this attitude of being supremely blessed that he would call us to do that. Amen? 
And this is what Paul is saying. I'm not blessed once. I'm not blessed twice. I'm not blessed three times. I'm not blessed four times. This is now the fifth time. And he stood. And it's interesting, from this point on, after we're done with the longest of his testimony, we hear very little of it from this point on. Again, the Holy Spirit is just driving it down into us. This Holy Ghost condoned, if you will, order of speaking of the things of Christ. Now look what he does again here back in Acts chapter 26. Look at verse number 3. So he's happy. And then, again, we, we see Paul in his, in his preaching and how he handled the lost people. Now, you have to remember and keep in mind, the Lord Jesus, when the Lord Jesus preached, he was, was he not the most compassionate with those who were sinners, those who were lost? Who was he most harsh with? He was most harsh with who? The religious people. And so you see that here. But when he preached to sinners... He was very compassionate. He was very kind. He was all of these things as he was, if you will, preaching the gospel to them. That's what we see here with Paul. Paul is very compassionate. He's very, very thoughtful as he preaches the word of God here to these people who are lost. They have no clue. They cannot see, brother, and why? Because they're blind. They cannot hear, brother, because their ears are stopped. They cannot understand because their hearts are rock, stone, solid. And so, Paul, again, he says this to King Agrippa. Look at verse 3. Especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Well, brethren, just as Paul, again, if you can go back in the pattern, when he stood before Felix, you remember he did the same thing. He was indeed respectful, but without flattery. He just simply is going to tell the truth. And brethren, again, herein lies... The Spirit's biblical balance concerning this. What do I mean by that? Well, some people speak the truth, but not with grace. Do you understand what I'm saying? Some people speak the truth, but not with grace. I was part of an IFB group of people. There was no grace. It was true. A lot of what they were saying, you're a sinner, you're this and that, that was absolutely true, but there was no grace in it whatsoever. It was just simply condemnation. And what we see here, Paul doing, brother, they make themselves, one who preaches the truth and speaks the truth with no grace, they make themselves offensive. And therefore, you know what they do? They literally violate the sacred scriptures themselves by being so mean-spirited and offensive, especially to the lost. Then you have the others, (laughs) On the other side, which we are steeped in, brethren, you have those who, if you will, go at it the wrong way from taking the scriptures and making themselves offensive to being afraid of people's feelings and worried about how they might feel if I do speak the truth. And you know what they do? Again, this is the imbalance of this. This is why this this portion of scripture keeps us balanced. You know what they do then? They're so scared. They're so worried that they're going to offend the lost person that they steer away from the truth. All they're concerned about is their feelings. And you know who they end up offending? God. It's a stunning thing. On one hand, you offend the scriptures. On the other hand, you offend God himself. It's stunning to think about it. So therefore, the balance that we see here with Paul is he's preaching to these lost people. And again, you have to keep in mind, they're lost. Now, there's two times in Scripture. One particularly that I'm going to look at this morning, because we're dealing again with Paul preaching to lost people. 
Look at Colossians chapter 4. Look here if you would for just a moment. Colossians chapter 4. In the context here, this is about the Christian testimony. This is about how we do it to the lost. When we look at the lost person, when we're preaching to the lost person. And again, situations will vary to some degree, but there is again a pattern that we see. A, if you will, a, 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 a Holy Ghost pattern. I want you to see your Colossians chapter 4. And again, if you look here again in the context, it's all about the Christian, what the Christian is doing, Christian's fellowship. And then we get to verse number five, and this has to do with how the Christian should be towards those who are outside, those who are lost. Look what he says there in verse five. Walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. Now listen to what he says. This is how we should speak to them. Let your speech be always with what? Grace seasoned with salt. Do you see that there? Grace seasoned with salt, that they may know how ye ought to answer every man. Now, again, we know in 1 Peter chapter, right, we, we understand that Peter says the same thing. We should be aligned. We should have an answer for every man. But if you look at the context of Peter, that's talking about you and me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be kind one towards another. We should love one another. We should speak a certain way one to another. But here specifically, he's telling us how to speak to the, to the, to the lost, how to generate that conversation. And one of them is, of course, telling them that I was just like you, and here's what Christ did. He converted me in a most seasoned way, in a way that they'll press on your heart these truths. So that when I'm talking to so-and-so at the store, I'm talking to so-and-so in my business, you have an opportunity to be gracious and to be certainly kind to them. Paul spoke with grace, seasoned with salt, but he never, ever compromised the truth. And again, brethren, this is what we see him doing. Now look what he does there, Acts 26. Look at verses 4 and 5. So again, we, we see this glorious Holy Ghost pattern here that we've been seeing. So, so do you see why this is so important that the Holy Ghost putting this in the book of Acts five times is not in vain? It's not in vain and it's not unuseful. It's been very good for me and I pray it's been good for you. Because again, repetition, 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 brothers, and especially as we often talk, Howard and I talk about it all the time, right? Our hair is getting gray. I used to know the, I knew the, I mean, I could just whip those things. When your brain gets a little older and it starts to decay a little bit, it starts falling out of your ears, you get up in the morning, what's this clump of thing laying here? And it's part of your brain. We need the repetition. We need to hear the word of God over and over and over again. Because we are forgetful. Oh boy. But this is a good for us. It's a good pattern because, you know, believe it or not, it's not just the elders or some highfalutin Christian man in the, in, the, in the church to share the gospel. You know whose responsibility it is? All of ours. All of ours. It's the only way men will be saved. You're not going to trick them. There's no other way. Now look what Paul does here again. Look at verse Verses 4 and 5. Look at how that uh, he starts there, and he's happy. He's just going to get after it. Look what he does. He, again, reminds them of his pre-Christ life. This is what he does. My manner of life from my youth, which was at first among mine own nation at Jerusalem. Know all the Jews. This is important, brethren. Look at verse 5. Which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify... 
And after that, the most straightest sect of our religion, have I lived a Pharisee? Wow, that is quite, again, another statement. So what Paul is doing here is he's being kind, and then he's just laying out, hey, this is how I used to be. I was indeed a Pharisee of the strictest sect. Do you understand that? He, again, begins with the history of his pre-Christ life. In fact, he tells Agrippa and all those who are listening there, he literally tells them that uh, my pre-life Christ life is such an open book. Everybody knows. There is nothing that's been hidden in my Jewish history. It is so open that even the Jews, if they weren't so weak-handed and limp-wristed and weak-spined, they would be able to come to you and tell you exactly what I was like. This is exactly what I was like. And he calls them out. You ever have somebody come up to you and say, I remember how you used to be. You ever have, I, I've had that happen on numerous occasions. I'm not trying to make me the center. I'm just using my own life example that people notice a difference. I had moved away. I lived in Valva when I was a little kid, when I was young like these guys. I had moved away for years, and people knew how I was, even at 12 years old. And I went back and did my dad's funeral, and my friends, their mouths were laying on that They couldn't believe that I would preach the gospel. How could you who were like that, now stand in front and preach the gospel. Well, since you knew how I was, let me tell you what Christ did to me. Do you see that? It's a glorious thing that God does. And most of you, I'm sure, if you had old friends, they've come to you and said, what is wrong with what's happened to you? I think of the conversation Harrison and I had on Wednesday night when we were leaving. I'm not going to share it all, but you think of that. Both brothers now. I've been called out by the grace of God. Think of that. Who could have thunk it? No one could make that up. It's a stunning thing. This pre-Christ life. Even, as I said, his Jewish accusers could come and testify to his zealousness as a Pharisee of the straightest and strictest sort. In fact, Paul's accusers know very well that his loyalty to the Torah, and this is what we're talking about here, his loyalty to the Torah, this is what they are questioning. This is what they are trying to accuse him of violating. They know full well his loyalty to the Torah as a Pharisee. A Pharisee of Pharisees, in fact, they are such lying hypocrites that he has to again remind them of this truth. Look there, if you would, at verse 9. Look what he does. He says this, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, pre-Christ. That's the old life. This is what he was doing. I'm being faithful to the Torah. I'm being faithful to the laws of God, as best our Pharisee minds understand it. Look what he says. Which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. You hear that? They gave him the authority to do this. Not only that, they gave him handwritten authority. They know full well his loyalty to the Torah. They know full well that he was indeed a full-blown Pharisee of the, of the, of the strictest sort, he says. Following the law, what did he say? Perfect. And with their own handwriting and their own authority, Paul says, listen, uh, he says, uh, 
Verse 10, which thing I also did in Jerusalem of many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And then when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them. He was, again, we looked at his already in his earlier testimony, this exceeding mad. He's just blind with rage against the Christians. And he says this, I persecuted them even on the strange city, verse 12, whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. Again, brethren, he is calling them out. This is my pre-life, Christ. You know it. You know full well. You gave me authority. You commissioned me to go and kill these Christians, to put them in prison and do all these things. And ironically, he's standing there. Well, we're going to look at the promises of God. He's standing there. He was a Jew of Jews, as we have seen over and over again in the scriptures. He calls them out of their hypocrisy to more utter hypocrisy. Look here, if you would, Acts 26. Look at verses 6 and 7. You've known me from the beginning. You know my life. You know what I did. This is what he says in verse 6. And now I stand. And in judged, listen, I want you to keep in mind there's three words he uses here that we're going to look at. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promises made of God unto our fathers. Verse 7, under which promise our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. Look what he says. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused of the Jews. Well, Paul here gloriously as he's preaching, is led by the Spirit of God to sink the inseparable ties between the Old and the New Testaments. Brethren, most Christians don't even know what the Old Testament is about. They could not give you a high-lighted mountaintop uh, definition or understanding of what it is, and that's a shame, because the Old Testament is instinctively linked here, if you will, together. The promises of the Old are fulfilled in the new. And so they are synced and tied together. He proclaims to them, brethren, that uh, it's not in spite of his Jewish heritage, but because of it. It's because of his Jewish heritage that I'm now a Christian. Think of what he does. Again, syncing the Old and New Testaments together. The promises of God. It's not in spite of my Jewish heritage, he says, it's because of it that I have believed and preached what I do. Declaring to them that the Jewish hope and the Christian hope, brethren, again, you saw that word three times that he used, the Jewish hope and the Christian hope are founded, in my little peon brain, and grounded in the promises of God. They are inseparable. One begets the other. It is a stunning thing to consider. In fact, verse 8, look what he says. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? What is taught and preached throughout the Old Testament, brethren? What begins at the beginning almost and goes all the way through the Old Testament, clear into the fulfillment in the New? Well, there's going to be a man-child coming, and he's going to live a perfect life. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to live a perfect life. He's going to go on the cross, and then he's going to shed his blood and die. And then he's going to what? He's going to be resurrected from the grave. David spoke of it. Isaiah speaks of it. Jeremiah speaks of it. All of it, again, he's tying that Old Testament promises to the new fulfillment in the new covenant. And again, this is what he's saying. <laughs> you people are putting me up and charging me with things that you actually believe. 
But you really don't. Because God has not opened your eyes or your heart to that. But it is a truth that's taught throughout. This Jewish hope and the Christian hope are founded and grounded in the promises of God. Look at verse 23. Look what he says as we get just a little farther along in the, in the text there. Verse uh, 22. Look what he says. Having therefore obtained help of God. See, in your natural state, you'll never understand that. You'll never get that. You'll never grasp it. That's a miracle work of God. When you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection, as we're going to see here in just a little bit when Salem is baptized, when you have already trusted in Christ, you didn't do that on your own. Paul says, with the help of God, God intervened on the road to Damascus. He stopped me. I was going to murder Christians, and he came and sought me out. Or I'd still be running. I'd still be on my donkey. I'd still be heading to Jerusalem. I'd still be going out here and over here killing these people. Thinking I was doing it for God. Now that's deception. That is a, a, just a classic, classic description of deception. Thinking you're doing something for God when you're actually fighting him at every step of the way. It is a stunning thing. And Paul says here, as we, can, as we finish that up, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. I'm reminding you, the Old Testament's tied to the fulfillment of the New. Remember, this is what it says. And then verse 23, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first, uh, be the first that should rise from the dead and show light unto the people and unto the Gentiles. Again, this is the theme, brother. This is the purpose. These are the Holy Ghost ordained, uh, uh, if you will, orders and purposes for Paul's preaching here now before this audience full of kings and queens and every highfalutin person you can think of. He's there defending and preaching the gospel. Now again, as I said here uh, in our text, that Paul did not separate them. He, he eternally and God eternally synced the Old and New Testament together. Let me show you. Look at John chapter 4. Look here if you would. Look at, look at what the Lord Jesus himself said. Again, if you think that this is separated, it is not. It is tied together. Look at what Jesus says to the woman at the well. Again, as we see this together, look here at verse number 21. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship what ye know not. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the who? Of the Jews. Why would Jesus say that to her? Salvation is of the Jews because the Lord Jesus comes through the Jews. All of the promises in the Old Testament are through the lineage of the Jews. This is why salvation comes from the Jews. This is what he's saying. Look, you guys are you're, you're, you're persecuting me and questioning me on these things, which our scriptures say will be. And so... He's just simply tying it all together. This is what he's doing. Hey, you know what Jesus said? Jesus himself said salvation comes from the Jews. What does that mean? It means that the Savior's coming through the lineage of the Jews. In fact, if you continue on there, the Bible says in verse number 23, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh to worship, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, when he come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, what? I that speak to thee am he. So again, salvation, right through that lineage, coming right down through the promises of God, right down through the security of the Old Testament of God. 
being fulfilled now and, and was fulfilled in Christ Jesus himself when he died, when he was buried, and when he rose again. Now, as I said in our text, our religious affections are drawn to the three times. And I want to read that again. Look back at Acts chapter 26, verses 20, and verses 6 and 7. I want to read that again. Hope. <laughs> hope. Brethren, what you're going to get is an inspired uh, definition of hope. <laughs> okay? Hope is not as the world defines it. Hope is not a wish. I hope it happens. It's not a bunch of basket full of fairy tales. Anything like that. Hope. The biblical hope we see here in this text. And I want to just quickly touch on that. Look at verse 6 again. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Verse 7. Of which promise are 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night. Hope to come. <laughs> There's the hope of the promise. There's a hope that is going to come. And then he says this. Which for hope's sake, King Agrippa... I'm accused of the Jews. The word hope literally means, in our text, and from a biblical uh, definition, it is indeed, and it literally means, brethren, a infallible promise, if you will. It literally means uh, an infallible assurance of future good. It is not something we're hanging on the edge hoping God does. That we should, well, we hope it all works out. That's the world's definition of hope. That's not what Paul is saying. You can't have that kind of hope when, when prophecies that are three and 4,000 years old have been fulfilled. That's not by chance. That is God's sovereign hand. He is, he is absolutely, infallibly assuring us a future hope of good. In fact, again, biblically, there, this word is used tied to many things. But we live in the church age, don't we, brethren? So I want you to see how this word is used concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his second coming. Is that not a hope? Is, is that not something that is infallibly going to happen, brethren? Even though the naysayers and the scoffers say, where is this coming, he's promised. Oh, it's coming, brethren. And it will infallibly come. And this is what Titus said. Look at Titus chapter 2. Look there, if you would, again. This hope is not fairy tales and, like I said, a basket full of hopefuls and wishes and fairy tale things. It is much deeper than that. Look at Titus chapter 2, just quickly, one of the ways that it's used here in Scripture. And there are many, you'd have to kind of do your own study on this, but look at verse number 11. Woo! <clears throat> look what Titus says. You know what he does? He first reminds me of, reminds us here in this text of the first advent. In other words, that promise that was made by Isaiah 700 years earlier has now been fulfilled. His first advent when he was born of a virgin, born of a woman. Look what it says there. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That's the first advent of Christ as he was born and became a man and walked fleshly on the earth. Then look what he says. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now look what he says in verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope. Do you see what that is? That is a future guarantee. That blessed hope. In fact, 
We should all stand up as Christians because this is the same word that Paul used. I think myself happy. I am supremely blessed. Because you know why? Because it is in concrete that the Lord Jesus Christ came as a man and He will again come as a man in the clouds. He will come a second time to bring judgment to establish His kingdom. You can write that down, even though the, the scoffers and the naysayers scoff at it. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So again, brethren, this is the hope. This is the idea. It's not willy-nilly, flicky-flicky from men. It is God's infallible assurance of good for our future. It is quite an amazing thing. In fact, one more thing. Look at Hebrews. Look at Hebrews. That word hope is used again here in the definition of faith. Now, many of you are familiar. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying. Many of you are familiar with, you know, the, 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 the triple A steps of alcoholism. And I lost the name. How come I can't think of it? It just got, it's gone out of my head now. But you go there and you all gather together. And, uh, and, and, and the first thing they tell you is when you're trying to overcome your, your alcoholism is that you have to have faith in something. In fact, they'll tell you. My wife's aunt went there. Right? Wasn't it your aunt? Huh? Cousin? Oh, your uncle. Yeah, it was her uncle. See how I get things messed up? I'm just screwy. And they, they literally told them that you have to have faith in something. In fact, if you want to have faith in the doorknob, you can have faith in the doorknob. That's not biblical faith or hope. No. In fact, Hebrews 11.1 1 defines what biblical faith and hope is. Look there. A, an inspired definition for us. Now, faith is the substance. That's the first word you want to underline there, the substance, brethren. <laughs> it is a setting under. It is a foundation. In other words, there's something that is of substance there. There's a foundation. It isn't just faith in a doorknob or faith in a light bulb or faith in whatever you want. It is a biblical faith. There is substance to it. Not only is there substance, but look what it says. The substance of things, what? Hope for. There it is. There's that, again, that going forward, that, that infallible assurance that God is going to bring good to the child of God. So we have substance, we have hope for, and then look what he does there. Look at that last word. Hope for the evidence of things not seen. Wow. That, brethren, is such a glorious definition. You know what that word evidence means? It literally means a conviction of the heart. And you know what? That evidence is Holy Ghost put in you. That is a miraculous work of God. Because, brethren, none of us have seen Christ. And if you have, you're lying. Okay? You're Benny Hinn, you're these guys. They lie like devils, all of them. If you saw Christ, you'd, you'd shrink in a corner. You, his holiness is so great that you can't even begin the presence of His holiness. The evidence of things not seen it is indeed a conviction of the heart that this is true. This is what Paul is saying. Hey, for the hope to come, that's future. God's infallible uh, bringing that to pass. The hope. Not wishes, not fairy tales, not pie in the sky, but indeed something of substance and foundation. Amen? This is what we have. This is what we see in Holy Scripture. 
Biblical faith and hope, brethren. Listen, i got to bring this to a close. Stand on the very nature, the very personhood, the very nature, the very personhood, according to the definition in Hebrews 11. Substance, foundation, conviction of the heart. Biblical faith and hope stand on the very nature, person, and promises of God. This is what Paul is saying. And they do indeed, brethren, have a very specific, if you will, object. Christ is the object of our faith and content. His death, burial, and resurrection is the saving uh, substance of that. And believing in that, trusting in that, one is saved. This is what Paul, that's all Paul is saying. And so, as we bring this to a close, let me just close with a practical point. I'm sweating like old T.D. Jakes there. I don't know what's going on here. Anybody got a, you got a, Keith, you got a Holy Ghost towel over there? I can wipe my, oh, okay. I'm trying to get myself dried off here. Let me just close, brethren, the practical point. The real issue that Paul has laid before them, and again, as I said, it's not a judicial inquiry of them getting information from Paul. They have no authority. Paul's, Paul's appealed to Caesar. He's going to Caesar. They think they're trying to get some information from him. And actually what Paul's going to do here is he's going to draw something out of them. The Spirit of God's going to draw something out of them because uh, neither one of them had any questions. They just let Paul preach. Go ahead, Paul. Paul says, all right, I'm going to go ahead. And this is what I'm going to preach. This is what I'm going to tell you. This is what you need to hear. The real issue is indeed the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And putting it in the words of Festus, brethren, listen, it's all about a dead man whom Paul affirms to be alive. That's what we're talking about. That is salvation. That's substance. That's foundation. That is woven throughout all of the pages of Scripture. Now listen, we've learned from Paul's example that it is indeed good for us to use our pre-Christ, pro-Christ life as a testimony to the lost. That's what Paul did. This is how I was. This is how I am now. Amen? That, that's a good thing. It's an amazing thing. We've also learned from Paul's example to be faithful with the whole counsel of God, both the Old and the New Testaments. Do not shut your Old Testament. You will not properly understand the new without it. You will not. So we use the whole counsel of God, and when we speak the whole counsel of God to the lost, into their ears, we speak with grace, seasoned with salt. This is what we do. You try and control yourself. Again, situations. Last year we were in the, down on the street corner. It was very difficult, Right? You guys remember this. With some 21-year-old kid that knows nothing standing here and screaming in my face. That man can get pregnant. <laughs> it's very difficult to stand there and preach and be seasoned with grace. But you know how you do that? You remember the compassion God showed you. Speaking unto them truthfully but with grace. Amen? Now the religious ones, that's another story. Jesus himself and Paul both handled the religious differently. We're talking about lost. This is who he's standing before. And brethren, what can we say? May the Spirit of God continually 
sink this deep down into our ears, deep down into our hearts, because without it, there will be no application. Do you understand that? The Spirit of God must apply that to us, or we will never live it out like Paul has. Never. We'll be quiet. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Don't worry so much about their feelings now. We worry about their feelings later. Because when you die and you're outside of Christ, you go where Lazarus and the rich man went. Where the rich man went. Who daily felt the flames of hell burning his body daily. So, brethren, that should bring us to be compassionate people. Amen? Just like Paul. Loving them and understanding that God is in sovereign control of salvation. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. He's just simply being a faithful man of God. Amen? And that's all we can do. Let's uh, pray together. Father, we, again, are thankful for the lessons here. And just the practicality of it all. As you once again, for the fifth time, have shown us a great Holy Ghost condoned outline of sharing one's testimony. I thank you, Lord, for putting it in there these many times because it is your good pleasure for us to hear it these many times. And Father, as we, Lord willing, take up the text next week, oh my, 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 Paul speaks of that miraculous time where you did what only you can do, where the Spirit of God did to the heart what only he can do, as the Father draws one to himself. And Father, we thank you for that. We give you all the praise, and as we sang in that song earlier, all glory be to Christ. May our legacy and the things that we do, may they be laid aside, and may Christ be glorified and lifted high in all of it. And now, Lord, as we gather around the Lord's table, and as we uh, soon to participate in a, in a baptism, we, we thank you, Lord, for the Lord's table. We thank you for what it is and what it brings and what it represents to us and what it makes us think about. And we thank you again for the other ordinance <laughs> that has indeed been going on for near 2,000 years, the baptizing of one who is trusted in Christ, who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We love you now and thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.